0: Today we're going to be in John chapter 7. And the last time we finished up with John 6, which was a hard teaching. It was a difficult teaching. It was actually a harsh teaching. And many of the disciples, the majority of them, it says, walked away from Jesus not to come back anymore. And we know that when we apply this teaching, even today, it can be difficult to receive. Uh, But it's good. You know, God wants us to be stretched, to be matured. And a lot of times it doesn't come except through adversity. And today we're going to start John chapter 7. I'm going to break it up into two different sermons uh, because there's a lot here and it's a pretty long chapter. And really we'll look at the spiritual significance of the Feast of Tabernacles, how Christ embodies that. But for this morning, we're going to look at the events that lead up to it. So verse 1, it says, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. For he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. After these things, what things? We know that there were really no chapter delineations until several centuries after the Bible was written. And I'm just, just for the sake of grouping some of these events, I'm going to group it starting with chapter five. In chapter five, we saw that Jesus healed a paralytic man, a lame man, except He healed on the Sabbath and the religious leaders took the Sabbath to mean something that God had never intended and it was really a pet peeve of theirs that this man was healed on the Sabbath so from that time there was a concerted effort to try to do away with Jesus because he was trying to change some of the mindsets and the entrenched ideas of the religious system at the time and they wanted to fight that instead of being open-minded to what God had for them the second thing in chapter 6, again, is this harsh teaching that Jesus espouses that alienates the majority of his followers. So the Lord's ministry at this point has taken some heavy torpedoes, and this is going to carry in to chapter 7. The Feast of Tabernacles, a little bit of a background. In the Hebrew, it's Sukkot, which is the plural of booths or tabernacles or a makeshift structure. And this was to commemorate the Children of Israel's wilderness wanderings and God's provisions. So there's a lot in this. We would understand it to be in our October, the fall season. It would be in Jerusalem. And there was uh, water pouring and lamp lighting ceremonies, which we'll get into uh, the next time we meet. And all this happened six months prior to the crucifixion. So to me, I always enjoy doing a little research, giving us a big picture before we jump into seeing what we're reading and why we're reading it. Now, the Jews in this instance were the religious leaders. And some, you know, John was Jewish, Jesus, Jesus was Jewish. So there's nothing derogatory here. It's just a classification of the Jewish leadership versus the crowd, who is a mixed group, mostly Jewish, some Gentile. And you see that dynamic going on. But the Lord was not afraid to die. So as we read this, we can't get the impression that the Lord was Uh, not wanting to go because they may kill him, because we know that they did. And it was God's plan all along. It was prophesied all the way back in the Old Testament. However, he wasn't going to perish at man's timetable, at man's hands. Uh, This was all prophetic. How do we know that the Messiah can't come today? That we missed it when we saw Jesus? Because there's several prophecies uh, in Genesis, Haggai, and a few more that are time-sensitive prophecies that really give you some to the day that he was to come. So as we look at this, we see that Jesus had to die. And I should walk that back for a moment and say, Jesus didn't have to do anything. He died because he loved us. He loves us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit had this great plan because mankind, men and women, had rebelled against him, his creation that he loved so much. Instead of just wiping them out and starting all over again, he wanted to redeem mankind. So God so loved the world, John 3.16 says, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The Lord didn't send, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him, Jesus, the world might be saved. Verse three, his brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, Show yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. Some look at this and see a little bit of sarcasm in there. Uh, The disciples or his brothers are clear, speaking about your disciples, not that we're a part of this. Jesus was born through a miraculous means, and then Mary and Joseph had normal marital relationships and had many other children. Of course, they would be his younger siblings, um, and they did not believe until the resurrection, of course. You know, you grow up with your older brother, and he never does anything wrong, but you don't think much of it, and then he rises from the dead, and you say, "Hmm, maybe I should pay attention to this, you know? So after the resurrection, and two of them wrote sacred scripture, uh, Jude and James. Now, as we look at this, we see that They were not necessarily believers, but they had no problem giving a ministry advice. Hey, Jesus, go big. You know, you just lost a whole bunch of followers and the Feast of Tabernacles is coming up. If you're really looking for a following, go big. And that was the advice. And today, the world's advice is still bigger is better. And that's not necessarily the case. Sometimes bigger is better often reflects a big ego. Incidentally, Probably unwittingly, the Lord's brothers gave the same advice to Jesus as Satan had given to Jesus when he was tempting him in the wilderness. So, Jesus, you know, you're going to go to the cross. I guess that's an okay plan, but, you know, if you just go to the highest point of the temple, right to the pinnacle, and cast yourself down, the angels will catch you lest your foot dash against a stone. Uh, right? And that would be in Psalm 91. So, forget about the cross. Do it this way. If you do that, I guarantee you. Bigger is better. Everybody will see that you're the Messiah and you don't have to go to the cross. Well, that was wrong because obviously without going to the cross, we would be in a lot of trouble right now. Verse 6, Jesus said, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. I'm going to switch a few times to the New or the Living Bible, which is I consider this translation, the, in other words, Bible. Uh, And it kind of takes the Greek and it explains the figures of speech. So in this Bible, it says, Jesus replies, it's not the right time for me to go now, but you can go anytime and it will make no difference. In other words, everything I do is on God's prophetic timetable, including the messianic presentation. But as unspiritual men, you guys can live your lives by devotions or by um, impulses and desires. whatever you do. And unspiritual people do that. Hey, let's do this. Hey, let's do that this weekend, giving, paying no mind to what God would have, but just living our lives based on carnal and fleshly desires. Whatever I want to do right now, I'm going to do. Hey, let's eat. Hey, let's do this. You know, let's have a party. But as Christians, the more we're devoted to the Lord, the less we do things on our timetable and we realize that God has everything in his hands. I love talking to the older saints because they will say, hey, I'll see you on Sunday. And they'll say, if the Lord wills, because they know that even their very life is in his hands. Unfortunately, there are some believers that are just kind of riding the fence, living in both worlds. And they also live by impulses and desires. You know, their lives don't really reflect or they do reflect the activities of their unsaved neighbors. There's a lack of commitment, sacrifice and devotion to the Lord. Seven, Jesus said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast for my time has not yet come, fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. I want to digress for a few minutes the world, Jesus speaks about the world, in the Greek the word is cosmos, has a narrow semantic range. It can mean, you know, the world system, it can mean the unsaved of the world, it can mean the rebellious world, the world, anything outside of of God's real um, domain as far as his close uh, management of it. The world system hated the Lord because the Lord was a force of conviction being God, he was not happy about the evil in the world and certainly less happy about the religious system who was supposed to set an example to the people and bring them to God, but they had b- become corrupt. I'm going to read John, First John, written by the same disciple, 2, 15 through 17, only three verses. And I think no matter what scripture we're in, as believers, this is always timely for us. Verse 15 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, here's the difference between John 3.16. It says, for God so loved the world. Now we're telling us not to love the world. In John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he loved the people, the unsaved, rebellious people that he wanted to see redeemed. Here, the world is speaking about the material world system or the control that the unsaved has over the world and is antagonistic to God. So make that dichotomy. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, period, period. Where the world is in our hearts, the love of the Father is not there. They're incompatible. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever, So there's a very clear understanding for those of us that are carnal and we just love everything the world has to offer. The Lord is saying that's passing away. That's going bye-bye. But his kingdom is coming. Every day we get closer to the Lord establishing his kingdom where he is leading it. Now remember, when Adam and Eve were created, God gave them dominion over the earth. Tend it, have dominion over it. He gave them some instructions. Be fruitful and multiply. However, when they went with Satan's plan of rebellion, they forfeited that, that creation to Satan. So when Satan offered Jesus all these kingdoms of the world, if he would just bow down to him, he was rightly saying that he could have given that to him. Okay, But we know that the Lord is eventually going to take it back from him. Uh, Satan currently can offer you anything in the temporal realm. And loving this world is loving Satan's playground. We have to understand as believers, listen, I love air conditioning. I love jumping in the pool. There's things in the world that I really like, but in my heart of hearts, the Lord could come right now and I'd be fine with it. Amen. As an immature believer, though, I would think about the Hapazo or the rapture or the Lord's coming back for his people, and I'd be like, you know, Lord, I, I kind of hope you don't come now because I'm in the middle of doing something I really like. you know. But as you mature, you realize that, hey, I want to be on his timetable. Whenever he comes to redeem you know, everything and, and set up his kingdom, that's a good thing. So here's the... Uh, Here's the enigma. God loves the world, people, right? He wants to save the world. Now, when he pulls us out of the world and he saves us, there's a problem. We're still attached to the world. Our hearts, at at times, is attached to the world. So God is the great heart surgeon. As we start growing as believer, he starts to slowly, surgically cut away from our heart You know, you hear of hardening of the arteries, plaque, and things that could affect the heart. As we grow as believers, he slowly starts cutting away our love for the things of the world because he wants the love of the Father to be in us. But that comes with a price. If you've been a Christian long enough and as you start to pull away from the world system, you'll notice you may not get a promotion. You may lose friends. You may lose financial opportunities. Things will happen to you because the world is not happy with your light, because you're a testimony to the reflection of Jesus Christ. Verse 11. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Or the religious leaders. Remember, the people are the mixed crowd. So there's this discussion amongst the crowd about Jesus. He was and still is a polarizing figure. You know, if you go to a mixed crowd, you go to a social event, and maybe it's not a Christian social event, you start talking about Christ or the Bible, some people may get really turned off. Their faces may start to get contorted just by the things that, you know, you've experienced it. What am I saying? You know, if I said, hey, I'm getting involved in Wicca or Buddhism or Scientology, people would probably not even bat an eye. But when you start talking about Christ and what he stands for, it becomes immediately polarizing in that room. Some will be drawn toward it. Some will be pushed away from it. But remember, the position you hold about Christ will determine your eternal security. So it's something to, to consider and look at. Now, it says, no one spoke openly about him for fear of the Jewish leadership. There was still a tradition. There was still a religious issue that many did not want to break. We don't want to offend them. Now, you can go to Jewish sources. You can go to Josephus. You can go to other historical sources outside of the Bible, and they'll tell you the same thing, that there was, it was a family thing. It was a coup, and the, the high priest, the, the priests, and you know, this was a corrupt system. They overcharged for the lambs that you would bring, The money changers charged you usury. Uh, So you can find extra biblical sources that will tell you, in addition to the scripture, that it was corrupt. And even though the people knew that, there was a peer pressure involved. They couldn't break with that tradition. Karl Marx said religion, it was a long quote, but towards the end of it, he says, religion is the opium of the people. And in a lot of ways, he's right. As a matter of fact, the Antichrist in End Times, if you read the book of Revelation, for the stragglers, for the religious people who don't really buy the whole antichrist thing. You know, they're not really happy about everybody swooning towards him. He sets himself up with his false prophet. They set up an ecumenical religion at the end. Everybody's happy. There's no more fighting and division and and doctrine. And what happens? He brings everybody else, the religious people, on board because he realizes that religion is the opium of the people, of the masses. So that's how he gets pretty much the whole world under his sway. And then it's hard to break away from him after that. And many have tried to do this as well. However, Jesus gives life. Now, tradition is not all bad. A lot of tradition is based on scripture. Religion is not all bad. But uh, what happens is when men take hold of it, they start controlling and they enslave. And Jesus gives life and he frees us from that. Why do I have to follow that rule? Well, I'm just going to follow what Jesus says. 14. Now, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? So many wonder why he first tells his brothers, you know, I'm not going to go up there. You guys can go. And now he goes up there. Seems like they're saying you're doing this in secret. Now he does this openly. Everybody can see him. The answer is, it was God's time you've been a believer long enough, you understand that as believers, we model ourselves or we try to after God's timetable. I can tell you that there's, there's times that I've wanted to do things right now. There's a problem. There's a situation. I'm a fixer. I want to fix things. You know, sometimes I'll be having discussions with my wife and She'll be pouring her heart on me and I'll say, well, you should do this and you should do that. She goes, can you just listen to me? (laughs) And she's right. I got to stop, get out of fix mode. Just listen, you know, be a friendly ear. Uh, And she's right about that. And there were times that I've wanted to fix a situation. Well, I'm going to call that person. I'm going to straighten this out right now. And God's like, "Mm, it's not the time for it. Well, I'm going to call anyway. Well, I'll make sure they don't pick up the phone. You know what I'm saying? And it's normally in hindsight that we look back and we realize that, wow, that would have been a colossal blunder had God allowed me free reign in that situation. And it always teaches us these lessons about God's timetable. It's all in the Lord's timing, and he'll show us. Sometimes there's confusion, you know, it's nebulous, the situation, and God eventually will start to straighten it out as we're in prayer about it and some time passes. He may be working on the other person as well. Verse 15, again, how does this man know letters having never studied? In essence, in other words, how does he know so much having never been to our schools? Again, the religious leaders looked at Jesus. He came from a humble background. He didn't know anybody, he didn't know any of the Sanhedrin. They looked at their enrollment books and said, I don't see Jesus of Nazareth in here. How is he teaching with such incredible authority? And the people marveled as well in other scriptures. He speaks with authority, not like the religious leaders, because they were weak. They didn't have the Lord behind them. Jesus, being the Son of God, knew all spiritually, and he freaked them out, quite frankly, because they couldn't understand how he could have known the things that he knew. Remember, the Roman government was oppressive, but the religious system was becoming equally oppressive, and the people had, there was no hope. I think they were thirsty for freedom. They were thirsty to be free of the shackles of everybody holding them down. And Jesus came to do that. Now, we can look at this the same way today. We can look at uh, groups that get together and say, you can read the Bible, but you'll never understand it. You have to go through us. A magisterium, so to speak. A group of men who get together and decide what you should take out of the Scripture. You see, I don't see that in the Psalms. I remember David in the Psalms saying, Lord, I I love your law. Lord, I I meditate on your word day and night. David didn't have a magisterium. How did he do it? Because he had a heart for God. He was a willing vessel. Or an oppressive watchtower from Brooklyn, pulling the strings of their local fellowships. Or every time Tom Cruise gets uh, divorced, we learn a little bit more about the overbearing Scientology religion. People try to escape it after a while. And there's been some uh, pretty big scandals regarding some uh, deaths in that, if you can look it up on a a search engine and find that. Even, in in essence, the seminary. You know, today it's the battle of the seminary. seminary's becoming big again. Well, my seminary is better than your seminary. Well, I went longer and I studied under this guy. What are we doing, guys? The disciples learned from Jesus himself. You know, even when Calvary Chapel started a lot who were in organized religion were jealous of Calvary's because a lot of their pastors weren't seminary educated but they were amazingly the churches were growing and there were life in them so we got to get out of the whole who's who who do you got to know what degree do you have to get i got to be honest with you even with the bible college that's just so that you can know your scripture more uh, you know you could take the receipt and you know use it for fire kindling cuz i don't know what you can use it for in the world but it's to educate you To understand why you believe what you believe, God just wants us to be willing vessels, not part of some type of clandestine uh, subculture. Verse 16 Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Jesus presents in this section a three-pronged test to test any teaching, any preacher, anyone you see today, 2,000 years later, you can apply this test. Number one, does the teaching agree or contradict God's word? I can't tell you how many I speak to, but I love that pastor, but I love that ministry. Yeah, but here are the transcripts, you know. This is what he believes, and this is what the Bible says. We can split hairs on style of worship and how long, t- you know, how many days a month to take communion. That's really non-negotiable. But when we talk about the deity of Christ and the person of the Holy Spirit and things like that, we got to get it straight. So, does the teaching agree or contradict with the scripture? And number 2, Does the teacher point to his or herself, follow me, or follow Christ? Now, it's okay for a teacher to use their own foibles to let everybody else know that they're human and to relate to that teacher. However, we want to point you towards Jesus Christ. That's the the whole goal. And the third point, and it doesn't really come out so much in the literal uh, word-for-word translation of the greek but i'll try to make sense of it the third point is basically he's saying if there's anything else in your heart aside from really wanting to please god and be obedient to him you're going to be fooled you're not going to know you know you're not going to they weren't understanding his doctrine fw robertson said obedience is the organ of spiritual knowledge i love that the eye is the organ to receive images from the outside world and you know, imprint them onto the brain and create these memories are created over those images. However, obedience is the organ, the receptor to spiritual knowledge. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll follow my word or at least die trying. You know what I'm saying? If we're caught up in, uh, you know, could be any, any type of persistent sin. In this case, the religious leaders were caught up in murder. They wanted to kill him. You know, he was starting to take followers away from them. This is all they were concerned about. So he's saying to them, listen, you got murder in your heart. You're not going to understand what I'm saying anyway. It's jamming the signals. If we're really striving to please God and be obedient, Christ's words will become immediately apparent and they will make sense. Uh, First Samuel tells us that God says, I desire obedience over sacrifice. In the, in the priority scheme of things, his top priority for us is that we're obedient. He also says that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. That's pretty serious, because God hated demonic uh, contacting with demonic beings and um, trying to go to the supernatural route away from him because you were only conjuring up uh, ideas and understandings and, and images and communications from the demonic realm. So he said, rebelliousness is as the sin of witchcraft. Pretty powerful. And verse 18, again, he says, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. When we look at ministries today, a lot of them are big. A lot of them are fancy. A lot of them have the image or the man, his name or his image on everything. Is that self-glorification or is that glorification of God? whatever ministry you're looking at on tv or you go to does the ministry point you to god or does it point you to the leadership team you can get saved in any church there's a lot of good churches out there it doesn't even have to be calvary that's our attitude we don't own anybody here we're not keeping you captive you know we're not asking you to worship us we're asking you we're just kind of showing the way we're facilitating so that you can have your own relationship with god and when people come to me and say you know what i started praying When I'm alone, I start to talk to him. I know I did my job. You know what I'm saying? I really enjoy reading his word. 19. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? What did the law do? Is our goal, even as believers with the Holy Spirit, to be able to keep the law? You're not going to do well with that. The Bible is very clear. There is none righteous. No one keeps the law. The law reveals sin and failure in our lives. It shows us that we need a savior. It shows us the vacuum and the void that's empty, and I've got to fill it with something. It's got to be the savior. He died for my sins. So the law shows me that I'm convicted, and Jesus says, yes, you are convicted, but I'm your defense attorney. And as your defense attorney, I'm going to do what no defense attorney ever has done. I'm going to die and pay the punishment for your crimes so that you could be free. Pretty impressive. He's saying to them, you guys can't keep the law. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Even if you think you're keeping it externally, if you think murder in your heart, you've committed murder. All right? So whether your thought life can betray you, even if your physical life doesn't. So why do you want to kill me? One of the Ten Commandments is do not murder. Jesus knew their conspiracy He read their thoughts. He looked inside of their heart and he saw the hypocrisy and he exposed it and that made them more enraged. You know, when somebody confronts us, and I've been there, somebody confronts me and sits me down one-on-one and says, I want to point out a situation. I want to point out something you said or something you did. I can either either immediately become defensive, and we've all been there. The walls go up, the force fields, the machine gun turrets, you know, (laughs) don't touch me, don't say anything else. Or we can, and this is hard, We can break those walls down and say, you know what, let me pray about that, or you're right, I did do that, I'm sorry. Why is that so much harder, (laughs) you know, than just defending ourselves? Well, they went into defense mode because they had an image to keep to the people. There couldn't be any, uh, you know, cracks in the armor, so to speak. Verse 20. The people answered, now remember, this is the The group, the mixed crowd here, the people are listening to this. They're watching this exchange. They answered and said to Jesus, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? They were ignorant of the plot, but they also weren't discerning. And discernment today is still a problem in the church of America. Discernment. I love what uh, C.H. Spurgeon said. He said, discernment is not necessarily the difference between right and wrong. Discernment is the difference between right and almost right. Very subtle. So, hey, listen, even unbelievers know the difference between right and wrong. But what about the difference between right and almost right? If you listen to a preaching, if you watch a ministry, if you pay attention, if you go to church, can you see the discernment? Do you have the discernment to see the difference, the subtlety between right and almost right? 21. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Follow the logic here. Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter and this hypocrisy. In other words, the Sabbath day was a day of rest. God said not a whole lot about it, but I think he was clear. Well, so many books, rabbinical teachings, have been written on the Sabbath. And depending whether you go to Rabbi Hillel's school or Rabbi Akiva or Shammai, they'll all tell you something different about the Sabbath. They made it very confusing. God said rest. You know, rest. You weren't designed to just keep going and going. You'll eventually get burnt out. And how about, you know, resting and paying attention to me a little bit, which we should be doing anyway, every day anyway. But what happened was if you had a child, a male child, and you were supposed to circumcise him, the law said on the eighth day. But if the eighth day fell on the Sabbath day, that was actually considered work. But the one law took precedence over the other, the circumcision. So the best way I can explain this is, you know, God's laws had common sense to them. Um, when David and his men were starving and they, they needed to eat, they were famished. And they went to the priest and the priest said, all I have is the show bread, which is not lawful for the common man to eat, but only for the priest to eat. Uh, he gave David and his men the bread so they didn't starve to death. And God would have approved with that. That made perfect sense. Man's survival was more important than a ceremonial law. I'll give you another example. I love using this example. Um, gravity, no matter what you do, you jump off a high edifice um, and there's nothing to catch you, you're going to get really hurt because gravity is going to pull you down at a certain rate. However, there's another law that comes into contact and it's called Bernoulli's Principle. Bernoulli's Principle is really neat and it, it talks about the air pressure over and under an airfoil. Bernoulli's Principle... Was the reason why airplane wing uh, wings were made, and what it does is, as the air goes up over the wing and bottom, uh, it causes lift of the wing. So you can take this huge, few thousand ton piece of metal and get that baby off the ground and keep it in the air. Gravity is still at work, but Bernoulli's principle takes precedence over gravity. And I guarantee, if those engines conk out and the air starts slowing down over those wings, plane's going to fall and gravity's going to take over again. So. God's laws made common sense. They were mad at him because he healed a man on the Sabbath day. The man was disabled for 38 years. Jesus had compassion and mercy on him and healed him. Religious leaders were angry because he did it on the Sabbath. And he's saying to them, you guys are hypocrites. Don't you circumcise your kids on the eighth day if it falls on the Sabbath. So Jesus took a, or you could take your son who was ignorant of God's laws And you could help him make him whole by circumcising him. What Jesus was doing is he was making a man whole by healing him on the Sabbath. He even speaks of, uh, in other scriptures, he says to the religious leaders, which one of you, if your ox or your animal falls into a pit on the Sabbath, would you leave him there to die slowly until into the next day? Or would you pick him up out of that pit? And he said, how much more me helping a, a, a man, a human being? So they were hypocritical. I, f- I read this uh, article, and uh, it really hit home to me. Look at uh, in today's society. Philadelphia firefighter, Fran Cheney. He goes into a burning building. Woman's on the second floor. He sees her. She's gasping. She's choking. He picks her up. He starts carrying her down the stairs. And he thinks she's going to go out on him. So Mary Jackson, you can read this in uh, any of the articles. So, what he does is he takes off his mask, his pressured mask, and he puts it on her face so that she doesn't die. He takes a deep breath, puts the mask on, and goes down the stairs. Now he's in trouble with the brass. He broke the rules. He broke the rules to save Mary Jackson's life. Well, there's been a lot of public outcry, so the administration has backed off a little bit. Jesus broke the rules. He broke the rules to make a man whole. Religion can be destructive and oppressive when it becomes legalistic. where we get into a system where we're just following all these rules and it, it, it pens us into a box and we don't know why we're even following these rules. Legalism makes spirituality choke. It, it, it sucks the spiritual life out of supposedly having a relationship with God. Remember, all this was designed for Jesus to say, People, wake up, pay attention. The Lord wants a relationship with you, and that's not the way to go. So, we're going to see more of this on next Sunday, uh, but you can see he's leading up to that. Verse 24: Do not judge according to appearance, but with a righteous judgment. The religious leaders had their own hypocrisy, and they looked at Jesus and made superficial examinations of what he was doing. There was no depth to their investigation. And isn't that the worst thing when somebody points to you and says what you're doing wrong, but maybe they might be doing the same thing, but it's offensive because you're doing it, but they don't see their own sin. Chapter seven starts out with Christ's younger brothers wrong about him. We also see that the religious leaders were wrong about him. We also see that what the religion evolved into was also wrong and it didn't represent God. And we can see from the crowd that many of them were also wrong about him. We'll read this again. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. How does that affect us? I want to turn real briefly to Matthew 7, verses 1 through 2. Many of you probably have this memorized. Jesus says, Judge not that you not be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. D.A. Carson, one of the great Bible expositors, says that this verse does not forbid judgmentalism. I'm sorry, it forbids judgmentalism, but not moral discernment. We must judge. I'm going to try to confuse you and then make sense of it at the end. <laughs> but the Bible's clear. The Apostle Paul says, if I judge myself, remember, I did a a study on this because the word judge in the English, if you look in the dictionary, has a huge semantic range. It could mean damn somebody all the way on this side, but over here, it could mean just make a simple decision. In the Greek, it's no different. There's a lot of Greek words that are used for the word judge. But the Apostle Paul says, if I judge myself, I won't have to be judged by the Lord. In other words, if I look in the mirror and see that I have flaws and I'm not obeying the Lord and I work on them, then you know what? The Lord doesn't have to deal with me. But he will lovingly discipline those whom he loves. Second point, at times, where to judge others? When you look at 1 Corinthians 5 and church discipline, if a, a poison is coming through the church and is starting to spread, have to make a decision about what to do to, to maybe to keep the rest of the body from being negatively influenced. So a judgment is made. The Apostle Paul also says that when there was two brothers who couldn't um, fix their problem in the church, two warring brothers, and the church leadership wasn't fixing it either. And they went to the heathen courts. He goes, I can't believe you can't figure this out in church. You've got to go to the heathen judges. He said, don't you know eventually at some point we'll judge angels? That's a hard one because, you know, there's all kinds of ideas about that one. That's amazing. And I think what, what happens is, If you look at the religious system, they made bad judgments. However, 2,000 years later, don't bad judgments in the church lead to churchy drama? I mean, how many horror stories have you heard about judgmentalism? When you start looking at a person and then deciding whether they're saved or not based on their appearance, that's just foolish. When you start looking at a person's outward appearance, how they dress, their ethnicity, and you make a judgment about them, that's just foolish. You know, when you start making a, looking at a person's body type and make judgments about them, that's just stupid. And the Bible says we'll have none of that. i got to be honest with you, it still happens. Some look at me, I, I'm athletic, I take care of myself. And before they know me, judgments have been made about me and I still deal with it. They just think that I'm dumb because I work out. You know? Then I start talking about science and the Bible and, and they're like... I love to watch ignorant people change their you know, countenance when you start having the conversations and they realize that you're a human being. So judgments are wrong when they're about surface things. You see, God doesn't tell us to check our minds at the door when we come into church. What do we do when the majority is wrong about something? When they made a wrong judgment? If we're an unbeliever we have to turn from that majority, and that could imply consequences. If you think about an unbeliever and they start hearing about the word, and maybe they think to themselves, well, man, this sounds great, everlasting life, Jesus Christ, Um, you know, the word's working on me, and they may say to themselves, and it is a hindrance, but what happens when I go home? What will my family think of me? What will the religion that I'm part of think? You know, this could mean consequences for me. The title of the scripture is when the majority is wrong. Everybody was wrong here so far in what we've read. And Jesus is trying to make it right. So for an unbeliever, you know, a, a brother, I was um, spending some time with him this week, and he goes, I'm so blessed. I don't understand why the Lord blessed me so much. I said, brother, everyone can have that. But they are in their own impediment to their own salvation because of a list of things. God wants to bless all of us. He wants to give all of us eternal life. When we're a believer, what happens when the majority is wrong? And maybe it's in our own church, in our own clique, social club. A.W. Tozer said that to be right with God often means to be in trouble with men. And I would add, men who are caught up in the world system, and that can include other Christians at times what silly judgments have we been caught up in because the majority was was involved in it, and we didn't want to be any different see at some point we have to move from immaturity to maturity what is it that our Christian friends family um, maybe somebody that you're going to see today are caught up in and they're wrong as a majority what does Jesus say to do imagine the loneliness the Lord felt you said well he's the son of God well, you know what, when it was his darkest time, he called his disciples friends and they abandoned him, right? So what is it about our lives that we can look at where we may be that lone voice and we're afraid to do the right thing because the majority is saying something else. So as we go through this, before we go to next Sunday and you know, we really open up the Feast of Tabernacles, we see that Jesus is the living water or he provides that living water Um, Let's just take this part and apply it to our hearts and see where we might be able to make some changes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word as always, and uh, we thank you for the instruction, Lord. We thank you that as we look in the scripture, that we can see things about our own lives that may not be right, that we might be involved in something that...